Now, in this series, uh, our, our desire is um, to see each and every week, what has God laid out for us? What did it mean originally to the people when Joshua was recounting this, reciting this, writing it down, and then it went out to the people of Israel? What was it to mean to them at that time? And then secondarily now, we, we need to ask the question, what do we do with it today? And so it is a joy to walk through biblical history and there, we started the series out last week, just a quick recap. Aristotle made this quote, we make war that we may live in peace. That there are times in life in which we need to make war in order that there may be long-term peace. Joshua is the writer, the receiver is the people of Israel, and the reason that the book was written is that the book of Joshua is a divine call to courage by seeing God's faithfulness as he grows his kingdom through his people. We gave this definition for the kingdom of God. It's a definition that a man named Randy Pope gave years ago. The kingdom of God is the reign of Christ the King in the lives of the kingdom people, which grows extensively, that is broader in nature, and intensively, that is deeper in nature. Outward with numbers of people, inwardly with depth of surrender that each uh, individual child of God is giving over the controls of life to the person of Christ. Courage from within gives way to fear. Another way to say this is, I got this. When we say, I got it, eventually we're going to find something that is bigger, scarier, badder than us, and our courage that we try to muster up is going to give way to fear. But courage from above, well, that leads to faith. That's when we say, God's got this. And so I can move forward knowing that God is the one who is responsible for the results. He's just called me to go in and to do whatever it is he's asked me to do, but he's the one that's responsible for the results. Now, one way that we can divide up the book of Joshua, this is not the outline for the book of Joshua. This is a an outline, and it goes like this. There's the prologue, which is the calling of Joshua, chapter 1. Chapters 2 through 5 is entering into the land. Chapters 6 through 12 is taking the land. Chapters 13 through 21 is dividing the land. And then finally, there's an epilogue. It's a farewell of Joshua that is the last three chapters of the, of the book, chapters 22, 23, and 24. Now today, I would venture to say that there's been more emphasis placed on books, seminars, etc. on leadership. What does it mean to be a good leader? And you will find this literally in every phase of life. Teachers are talked to about it. Those in business are talked about it. Those in sports are talked to about it. You, any phase of life, we're going to hear over and over and over again about great leadership. But I want to tell you, I really truly believe this. I really believe that the world doesn't need more leaders. What the world needs is more leaders worth following. Now, Joseph Stoll wrote a book back in the 90s, and it is one of the best books that I have ever read. It's simply entitled Following Christ. In the opening section of that book, he talks extensively about this when he says, we don't need more information on leadership. What we need more information on is followership. How do we follow well? If I were to ask you today, who are you 
following, meaning human, who is over you. If I were to ask you, how good of a job do you think you are doing at following leadership, what would your response be? See, the easiest thing for us to do is to poke holes at leaders, is it not? Is there a coach in America out there that just always and only has the support of the fans? Are there any political leaders who would rise up and say, no, the thing I've been most impressed with is just the 100% support of the people in my constituency? How about teachers, business leaders, managers? Name any aspect of life. How good of a job do you think the average American does at following? And yet, do you realize the bulk of the material in the Bible is about following rather than leading? How well do we follow the leader who is worth following? Paul would say it this way, follow me, but only to the degree that I follow Christ. In other words, if I'm not going to follow Christ, I'm not going to be a leader that is worth following. We may find influential leaders. We may find those that have large organizations, large amounts of people. We may even find that they do incredible things. And when I say incredible, meaning it's, it's hard to fathom that they're even true. But they may not be a leader worth following. Hitler was an effective leader. If by leadership the only thing we're saying is that you get people following you in a certain direction. Hitler was not a leader worth following. I really believe this is true of the church as well. God's people do not need more leaders. God's people do need more leaders worth following. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to go through verses 10 through 19. If you have the physical ability, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? If you don't have the ability, no problem, sit, and you'll be just as honoring in your heart. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. You may be seated. 
dividing this particular section just, uh, of, of Joshua into three sections. The first one, I'm just entitling, Prepare to Battle. In verses 10 and 11, Joshua goes to the people and he asks them to get prepared for the battle that is about to take place. Now, keep in mind the context. God has promised the people that he was going to give the land to them. The generation that Joshua and Caleb are a part of, meaning age-wise, but not a part of mentally, heart, and will, etc., that generation did not want to fight. They lived as the defeated all the way through. They thought like the defeated. They fought like the defeated. And Joshua and Caleb are remembering the promise that God has made. And so now they're coming up to this uh, edge uh, here. And, and now's the time in which that generation that was unfaithful, that God said, you're not going to enter into the land, they have now all died off. Now, quick side note, Joshua and, and Caleb and others were likely doing funerals every day. Every single day, there was somebody else to say goodbye to. So they come up after all these bears. And so now, after seeing the death of their people, they know they've got to take the land and they've got to take the land violently. So Joshua goes to the people who are not used to battle. They're not used to war. And he says, get prepared for what's coming up. Now, what would have happened is that Joshua would have given this to the officers, the leaders, if you will, of these particular tribes. They would have then taken that word back to their respective groups, and they would have all gotten prepared with food, etc., for the battle that would ensue not too long after that. Notice this, though. Joshua's first act as the leader of Israel, the newly minted leader of Israel, his first act is an act of obedience. God comes to him, and three times God says, before this, uh, before this section we just read, three times God says, be strong and courageous. Remember, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you, you go lead these people. And Joshua, rather than being hesitant, rather than being reticent, rather than looking internally or even externally, he looks up and he says, okay. And so, Joshua, you're the leader. So what's the first thing he does? He goes... And he leads. His first act as the leader of Israel is obedience. Can I tell you this? Experience is indeed a good teacher. Experience is not the best teacher. Obedience is. Obedience to God will teach us more in life than experience will teach us. Experience is good. It's important, it's helpful, but obedience is a far better teacher. Obedience in the small and little areas of life, I promise, will do more for us um, in our growth, development, et cetera, than, than just experience alone. You don't have to be old and experienced to be a leader worth following, but you do need to be obedient. Obedient to what God has called you to do. And even if others around don't understand it, just obey. 
Now, are you going to walk out of here and say, you know what, I'm newfound, it's new year, I'm turning over a new leaf, I'm going to obey God in every single aspect. I hope that the desire of our hearts is, I hope the intentions of our heart is, yes, in every area I'm going to obey. But you're not going to muster up the strength to now go and be perfectly obedient. So experience does play a role for us. But I've learned far more over the years from saying, yes, Lord, than I have from saying, no, Lord, and then looking back and learning lessons from saying, no, Lord. Yes, Lord, is far more inviting. I seem to grow much more from that than I do from no, Lord. Joshua tells them to prepare for battle. Peter, when he is writing years and years after this story is already done, Peter in the New Testament writes this to the people of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your minds for actions. Now keep in mind, all throughout this, as we look at the book of Joshua, the kingdom of God in two directions. It's growing broader and it's growing deeper in nature. Can I tell you, God is calling us to prepare our minds for action. Prepare for battles that are going to face you. Now what are your battles? I don't know all the specific battles that you face. You don't know all the specific ones that I face. But there are some things probably that we have in common. But there is going to be a battle for you. A battle to surrender every area of your life over to the Lordship of Christ. And they will be little small decisions that you will make every day of your life. Am I going to trust God in this area or am I not? There will be a battle for ownership of your heart every day. There'll be battles in the office. Should you accept an inappropriate gift from a supplier? Should you use company funds for personal expenses? Should you take credit for others' hard work? Are you setting unrealistic expectations on those that you manage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? There'll be decisions that you'll make every day in the office as to whether or not I'm going to do it God's way or I'm going to do it my way. There'll be battles in the home, whether that's admitting that I was wrong or whether it's choosing to do the dishes when I don't want to, whether it's folding the clothes so that somebody else doesn't have to, whether it is intentionally opening up to those that I love about my hopes and dreams and fears, even though I really would rather stuff it. There's going to be battles in school, ignoring a cheat sheet for the exam. Standing up for the kid that is being picked on, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on, couldn't I? There's going to be little decisions every day that we face. And it's going to be for the battle of our souls. It's going to be, are we going to surrender more and more of our lives over to the Lordship of Christ and say, God, I want to obey. I don't have the strength to obey. I'm asking you to fill me with your power right now. The Holy Spirit, bring to me the power of Jesus. But God, I want to obey here. There'll be battles, each of us that we face. And I would share with us the same thing that the Scripture shares with us. Prepare your minds for actions. You likely already know what your triggers are. You likely already know where it is when you consistently fall in a certain area. Maybe it's a certain time of day as you get tired. Maybe it's when you lack food. 
Maybe it's whatever it is. You likely know what your triggers are and prepare your mind for action. And in as much as you can, make a decision before you get to even that particular situation. That would be ideal. There are certain triggers that I have if my kids say certain things. I know it, and they know it. And if they choose to say it, I've got a choice. I can either respond in the way that I really want to respond, or God may give me a different answer. If I prepare for that beforehand, Lord, how would you have me respond when this occurs? And search his scriptures and ask you for advice. Seek counsel. Prepare for action. Joshua asks him to prepare. There's also going to be battles as it relates to the growth of the kingdom growing extensively or broader that we will also face. I will face and likely you will face the battle of fear. Fear of being viewed as judgmental or as some part of a religious fanatical group. Or maybe even a fear of saying something wrong. When it comes to engaging the culture and asking that God would change the hearts and minds of people um, there, I, I likely will face fear in those directions. I'll likely will face a battle of ignorance meaning I just simply don't know what to say or to even how to start a conversation um, in there. I'll face a battle of apathy, most of us, meaning a battle that I just don't care enough about those who are separated from God. It doesn't matter as much to me about their eternal destination as much as it does my own personal comfort and convenience. There are battles that we will face as it relates to the kingdom growing extensively. And in as much as is possible, prepare your minds for action. How do we get prepared in those areas? Well, have you don't know what to say? Have you gotten trained at all in it? We offer training a couple of times a year in it. Maybe you don't get trained here. Well, go somewhere else and find a way in which would be good for you to share your faith on a consistent basis. You realize that, or you come to grips with the fact that you may just not care as much. I may not just care as much. How do we prepare for that? I think it's through prayer. I have found it virtually impossible to not care for someone whom I am praying for on a consistent basis. That was some advice that my father shared with me years ago, and I don't like him still to this day because of that advice. Because I can't sit and stew in my anger anymore. And when someone wrongs me, I now, out of habit, maybe not right away, but over time, will then go and pray for them. And God, doggone it, changes my heart way more often than I want him to. Pray. The battles internally and the battles externally, intensively and extensively, broader and deeper. These are the battles that we will face. Joshua tells the people then, I think the Holy Spirit's telling us today, get prepared. One football coach from years ago used to tell his players this. Every day you'll make choices. 
There will be an opportunity to do something you know you should, but you don't really want to do it. There will also be opportunities to do something you know you should not, but you really do want to do it. Gentlemen, what will you choose? That's what he would say to the players. When it comes to preparing for action, I would say pray, plan, and then in the littlest and smallest areas that you can, just obey. When God prompts you to love your spouse in an unusual way, maybe not a huge way, but an unusual way, just obey. When God calls and puts on your heart to honor your teacher or your coach or your boss in a way that may seem small, just obey. When God calls you to come alongside one of your siblings, even though you don't want to, just reach out with an invitation, an olive branch, just obey. And watch what God does. The second thing he tells us in verses 12 through 15 that the scripture tells us there's a remembrance for a command. There is now going to be encouragement for a few tribes. Joshua first came with encouragement for the officers in verses 10 through 11. Now he's coming with encouragement for a few tribes in verses 12 to 15. Notice that he calls out the Reubenites, the Gadonites, and the half-tribe half tribe of Manasseh. Now why would he t- say something specifically to this group of people? Because it was this group of people several years before this that when they came to a certain spot of the land in there, they decided, hey, we feel really comfortable where we are right now. And and we don't necessarily need to go all the way over, cross over this Jordan into the land that God has promised us. We feel really good about staying right here, right now. We like the way this land looks. We like the way this land feels. And we know what to expect here. But over there, we're not entirely sure what it is that's coming down the road. And so they go to Moses and say, Moses, we want to stay right here. And Moses, you can find this in Numbers 32. Moses then looks at them and says, you better be willing to fight. Are you going to stay back here while your brethren go on this journey, while they go in battle? Are you going to sit back in comfort and in peace? While your brothers go off to war, you better send your best when they go off. If you want to stay here, then stay here. It's not going to be what God promised us, and you're going to settle however you can stay here. But when the time comes for us to go into battle in here, you better send your best to the battle. And they say, absolutely, yes, we will send them. Yeah, we'll and so they send the people there. And so time goes on, and now the time comes. Joshua's going to say, hey, get prepared for battle. And then he says, and by the way, to those of you who chose to stay behind, you're, you're in your homes right now. Remember what you told Moses years ago. And remember what Moses told you. Because now's the time to fight, so come and fight. Now, one interesting little side note. If you look at the history of the nation of Israel, you will find that those who stayed on this side of the Jordan, rather than crossing over to this side of the Jordan, this group of people get hammered over and over and over again. Did God bless them? Absolutely. Did God love them? Absolutely. 
Did he love this group any more than he loved this group? Did he love this group less than he loved it? No, he loved them equally the same. This group over here did not fully obey and they got hammered over the years. What is God calling you to? Now, Joshua responds to this group of, of people nearly in the exact same way that Moses does with there are two important differences. Number one, Joshua adds that God is giving you rest in this. And then the second thing is Joshua adds the, uh, the phrase, you are to help your brothers. And this is at the heart of what's going on in this passage. There is to be unity among the brethren, even though there may not be uniformity. That God's people are to move together into battle because we're all fighting for the same thing. Unity is at the heart of this. So even though this group said, hey, that may not be where we necessarily want to go, then they, they said, we will, however, go and we will fight when the time comes to fight. I am convinced, though, that because they lacked the vision and they lacked the trust and they lacked the faith to go into the land that God had promised them, God still blessed them. But they didn't get the fullest of blessings that they would have had they just simply been obedient. Again, it's not that God's favor went more on this group than this. What is God calling you to do today? Is he calling you to something in the future that you cannot yet see? Is he calling you to move in a direction that might be a little bit uncomfortable? Is it more comfortable to stay over here? And God is calling you here? God is going to love you. God's going to cherish you. He's going to value you. But I'm telling you, that the blessings that occur in obedience are going to far outweigh your comfort. Oh, it will be uncomfortable to obey. Others around might not understand. But it always pays to obey. It never pays to violate your conscience. In a wonderful article that was written, I think we've provided a link for you in the notes, but Fighting for Unity, 12 Practices that Lead to Family and Church Harmony. Uh, I just want to give you just a few examples of those 12, just four of them. Number one, pray for unity. Number two, forbear in small matters. I like that one. In matters that are really small, just, just endure it. Number three, resolve to be a peacemaker, not a gossip. And number four, resolve to submit to mistakes on, important, on unimportant matters. When those who are in charge make, uh, make mistakes on matters that are unimportant, just submit to it. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. These are just four of the 12 ways that we can seek unity. Now, I want you to know when I was preparing this sermon, I, I knew months ago in thinking about this and knew in particular this week leading up to it, there is going to be a real danger in preaching this message. Because there might be some of us who think, wow, he's preparing this. 
goes right along with his letter. What he's telling us is that anyone in the church who doesn't see things exactly as he sees it then is in sin. Now, I want you to know that is to the best of my ability to discern my heart, that's not where I am. It's not my motive. My motive is to teach the text. And I know what Joshua is doing in this particular moment is he's calling the people to be unified in purpose, even though there will not be uniformity in thought. Wildwood is on the precipice of doing something that many of us can't see right now. It's okay. We, the leadership of the church, really believe that God has called us into this direction. If you don't see it that way, you have every, right, every encouragement from us. Please come and talk to us about it. But please do it the right way. Please don't do it by trying to gather up as much opposition as you can and then to my face say, no, this is great, this is great, and then lead a rebellion behind my back, our back as leaders. Just do it the right way. You're free to disagree. You're free to challenge leadership. We look forward to meeting with you over the next weeks, months, and talking about this. We look forward to hearing your concerns. But at the end of the day, God calls us to be unified, not uniformed. Jesus prays specifically for this in John 17. He asks God to give unity to the future church, meaning future in, in when he was on the Three times in three verses, he asked for unity for these future people. Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let me take out the middle section, which is really one giant parenthesis, and read it to you like this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Oh, my friends, not just unity amongst us as Wildwoodians. The unity of the church in Tallahassee. You have been so good at this over the years, and it really is a joy for me to, to tell folks. I tell other pastors, because they hear about us praying for them on a consistent basis, they say, man, this is really great. We, you know, we started praying like that, too. Yeah, this has just been the heart of the people for a long time. Can I tell you, thank you for not making mountains out of molehills with others' theology that's not exactly as ours is. Christ is the tuning fork. Jesus is the most essential thing we must be unified on. We must believe he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did, the Bible says he did. We must be unified on that. We cannot have variance on that. But in the, the words of a great theologian, Robertson McQuilkin, said this, the further one gets from the cross, the thinner the ice becomes. And so issues that are not pertaining to, to, to the person work of Jesus, let's just show charity. Unity, not uniformity. Finally, in this last section, verses 16 through 19, the people respond with, we will obey. 
This is encouragement from the officers. The first part is encouragement for the officers. Then there is, uh, the last part here is encouragement from the officers. The leaders are the ones who reach out and say, hey, we will obey. Now, this is what I love. This is the heart of a group of people who are saying the intention of our heart is that we will follow. The intention of our heart is that we will obey. Does history prove that they obey perfectly? Of course not. But look at where the intention of their heart is. This is why scripture could say that David was a man after God's own heart, even though he was a murderer and an adulterer, because the intention of his heart was to say, God, you have all of me. Nobody will ever live this perfectly, but the intention is there. And then when there is failure, when there is sin, then there is repentance. There is the turning of that, turning from self on the throne, turning back to the person of Christ on the throne, saying, God, would you please fix this? We will obey. We will follow. Do they have all of the answers right now? No. Do they have every bit of the game plan in front of them? No. Did they know exactly how the land was going to be divided up yet? Did they know exactly what battle was going to be fought when? Did they know what was going to happen on this day and that day? No. The people just said, wherever you call us to go, we're going to go. We're going to follow the Lord wherever it is that he calls us, even though we may not know exactly what that looks like. Oh, man, is that not where you want to be? Don't you want to be in a posture that says, Lord, wherever you call me to go, I will go. However much money that means or lack of money that means, whatever state it's in or other state or country, wherever you call us to do, whatever you lead us to do, yes, Lord. Because there is no, there is nothing like obedience. There's no blessing like the blessing that comes from obedience. Four times Joshua is called to be strong and courageous in this first chapter in verses 6, 7, and 9. Those three are from God. Verse 19 comes from the people. This is what unity, folks, looks like. Yes, we are afraid. Yes, we are uncertain. But yes, we will obey. In each one of these sermons, there's three questions we ought to be asking ourselves. Is there a command for me to obey? Is there an example for me to follow? And is there a principle for me to apply? Rather than me trying to tell you what it is that you should be thinking about applying, I just want you to pray. Is God burning on your heart a command for you to obey? As you open your eyes to see an example to follow, is there a principle that is given here that he wants you to apply? See, here's the thing. I close with this. Whether you look at Moses or whether you look at Joshua, if we were to use the American standards today about what successful leadership is, we would come to the inescapable conclusion that Moses was a failure as a leader and that Joshua was a success as a leader. We're going to get to the end of Joshua and we're going to find that the people by and large follow, that there's tremendous blessing that the people follow after the Lord 
all throughout Joshua, the remainder of Joshua's lifetime. It's about 30, 30-ish years it's going to take place for the book of Joshua. And we look at Joshua and see all the success that comes with it. We say, see, Joshua was a great leader. I agree Joshua was a great leader. He was a leader worth following. But if we use the standard we have in America, then we would say Moses was a failure as a leader because Moses never could rally the people. The people never did into the promised land. Was Moses a failure as a leader? Or did the people fail to follow? Do you want to be a leader with guaranteed throngs of people following behind you in a direction? Or do you want to be a leader worth following? Whether or not anyone follows you. I believe Moses was a great leader. I believe Joshua was a great leader. Because they were leaders worth following. They were first followers themselves of Jehovah God.